But first, we start closer to home as the world burns in this brutal war. Our hardworking Vancouver City Council right on top of the important issues here at home. Uh, the 25 cent disposable cup fee. They spent like five hours on this at a council meeting the other day. They will be retaining and keeping the cup fee in Vancouver despite the problems with it. Got Brad West standing by on that first. Have a listen to this report now from Global News reporter Grace Key. You'll still have to pay a quarter for the disposable cup fee in Vancouver. City Council voted against Councillor Rebecca Bly's attempt to repeal the fee. Staff did make some uh, minor tweaks and recommendations, um, and yet my my view is that they did not satisfy the initial uh, reason um, that I brought the motion forward for staff to go and review the bylaw. It didn't satisfy responding to all of those number of concerns that we did hear from the public. Starting March 29, drinks provided at no cost to the customer will be exempt from the fee. A cup share program will be set up for those living in poverty. Starting July 1st, food vendors must accept a customer's reusable cup for in-store orders. Councillor Jean Swanson, an outspoken advocate for the homeless, voted to keep the fee. The folks that I talked to in the downtown east side said the biggest issue was people who needed water. You know, you go into a restaurant and say, can I have a drink? And to have to pay 25 cents for that, it makes it so you can't. You can't really have water, which is no good, right? Okay, isn't it great and reassuring to know that our city council is right on top of these important issues around the disposable cup fee when there's so many problems in our city and all around the world. Let's check in with Brad West now, the mayor of Port Coquitlam, has been speaking out on this one. Hey, Brad, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. Okay. And I, I find it extraordinary that this council will spend four or five hours debating this cup fee when there's so many problems in this city right now, as, as including the random stranger attacks for a day, the violence we're seeing in the city. But this uh, city council continues to fiddle while everything else burns up. But let me get me let me get your thoughts on this cup fee and where you stand on it because you've been speaking out on it. What do you think? Yeah, Mike. Well, what I said about this cup fee is that it's greenwashed elitism. Uh, because it's under the guise of doing something for the environment. Uh, it's something that actually really goes after the people who can least afford it at a time when, as we all know, uh, costs are escalating out of control on just about everything. So yeah. why in God's name you would choose now as a time to layer additional costs on is just beyond me, particularly, as you say, when there are so many really key issues uh, with respect to municipal responsibility, things that the yeah. cities are actually responsible for uh, that need to be addressed. You know, it, it hurts poor people. It also nickel and dimes uh, working and middle class people. Uh, you know, pe- I've talked to families who are, you know, take the kids to the McDonald's drive through And so it's like you're not only going to get dinged for the cops, you're also yeah. going to get dinged for the paper bag and, you know, what is it actually accomplishing? Particularly when the first iteration of this just had the money being retained by McDonald's or Starbucks or Tim Hortons or, or you know, wherever you went. Yeah. The money wasn't actually even going to something to help the environment. Well, has that changed? Uh, That's still the case, is not, or has that changed? Well, I think that they've said that they're going to try and work with the companies. And, you know, again, you get this kind of language that makes it sound like something's going to happen. But I don't know what, what actual, how they're actually going to compel, you know, McDonald's to 
uh, fork over that money that they that they are taking uh, to do something positive for the so environment. But when you when you call it greenwashing, what do you mean by that? Like people might know what whitewashing is. What is green greenwashing? It's when when you do something and you use language that makes it sound like it's going to be good for the environment. So. Uh, you know, this has been trotted out. As saying, oh, well, this is something that we got to do to uh, because we're in a climate emergency, because, right. you know, we need to take action to protect the environment. Uh, and I just don't think that holds up to any scrutiny. You know, there's a lot of things we can do to help the environment. I'm really proud in Poco this past weekend, we had uh, our local scouts work with uh, the city and we planted 175 trees. You know, how's that for helping the environment in a really direct, impactful way? But this sort of stuff, you know, has become popular in some circles, and it just goes after, you know, regular working people, you know, who are just, you know, trying to get through the drive-thru, get the kids McDonald's or, you know, grab a cup of coffee and get on with their day. And, you know, it's just at every corner, it seems like, Government is looking to get their pound of flesh out of people. Okay, so there's no plans for a 25-cent disposable cup fee in Poco. <laughs> I think that's pretty safe to say, Mike, yeah. Okay, so it's not, it's not like, like, has anyone come to you as the mayor or council and made a representation on re- reducing waste in Port Coquitlam, if there's another way to do it? So we're actually going through our climate action plan right now. We're finalizing it to build upon the strong work that we already do. Um, you know, a whole bunch of different things. We've increased recycling. Uh, We really work on our diversion from the land waste. We were the first city to introduce a a food scraps organic green waste uh, program so that, uh, you know, uh, formerly when food scraps often were going into the garbage, now they go into uh, the the green waste. Uh, You know, so we're really working on that waste diversion, but we're doing it in a way that educates, that promotes, uh, that makes it as easy as possible for people, because I do think people want to do the right thing. But it, it doesn't go to these punitive measures that, you know, hurt people who can least afford it and really just nickel and dime, uh, you know, middle class people. You know, uh, if you're wealthy, you'll pay that 25 cent fee every, you know, every oh, sure, day, right? all day. Like, yeah, it sure. just, who cares? You know, yeah. Who cares, right? Yeah. Big deal. Um, but, you know, if you're, struggling, uh, you know, or if you got a, you know, mortgage and rent and childcare and, you know, the price of gas, you know, where does it stop, Mike? You know, you can't get blood from a stone and people are just being hit everywhere they turn. Let me ask you really quickly about another issue that has people pulling their hair out in the city of Vancouver, and that is some of the red tape in Vancouver for restaurants to get one of these outdoor patios. So they loosened up the rules around these outdoor patios during COVID. A lot of restaurants want to keep them going, but now they're looking at paying thousands of dollars for consultants and city fees to create a small patio, a $230 non-refundable application fee. You got restaurants complaining about the red tape and bureaucracy just for a little patio. What's the deal on that in Port Coquitlam? Because you guys allowed these patios too, right? We did, and I'm really proud of our program. We were the first to allow it uh, on a temporary basis during COVID, and we're the first to make it permanent back in September. Uh, And our approach was to do it in a very simple and straightforward way. One form, no fees. No fees. Really, no fees. 
And the w- reason why we did that, Mike, is again, it, the city doesn't need to go and get its pound of flesh out of uh, out of a restaurant. We want restaurants. And I put out an open call. If there's any restaurant out there in Metro Vancouver that's looking for a place to call home, phone my office, uh, email me. We would love to have you in Port Coquitlam. We're a growing city. Number of young families moving to our city. We've got a, a walkable downtown that's going through a revitalization. Um, you know, restaurants have, have had the crap kicked out of them, quite frankly, over the last couple of years. Uh, and we need to support them. You know, okay. they add so much to the vitality of our community. We, we need to bring them back, and you do it by supporting them, making life easy, uh, and, and making it so they can actually realistically go and do these things, not just theoretically do them. Mayor West, thanks for coming on today with your thoughts. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the war in Ukraine now. The civilian casualties are mounting on the ground. The stream of refugees fleeing the country. It's getting more desperate by the day. Ukraine continues to plead for that no-fly zone. NATO leaders, though, making that plain, this is not going to happen. What about those MiG fighter jets, though? Poland, they want to give those jets to the Ukrainian Air Force, but this is now tied up it's and and delayed i've got melinda herring standing by from the atlantic council have a listen to this this is uh vitaly klitschko uh the mayor of kiev the capital of ukraine asking for those jets have a listen to this do you need planes do you need these fighter jets we need planes we need the jets we need the weapons we're ready to fight please help us help ukraine Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Melinda Herring. Melinda is the Deputy Director of the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center, and I'm very pleased to welcome her to the show. Melinda, thank you very much for coming on today. Hey, Mike. Great, great to be with you. I really appreciate it a lot. Let me ask you, first of all, about this this jurisdictional dispute over these Polish fighter jets. It just seems kind of strange that there's so much weaponry, Western arms and weapons flowing into Ukraine but for some reason, these jets are in a different category, right? And it seems like no one wants Poland and the United States. They don't want to be the one seeing as the one that are responsible for giving Ukraine these jets, right? How do you analyze it? So yesterday looks really amateur. What happened yesterday was the Poles announced that they would send about 30 MiGs. They're Soviet airplanes that the Ukrainians know how to fly to Germany, to um, a U.S. base in Germany, and then the Americans would take over from there. And the Americans responded by saying, what the hell, or what the heck, sorry, I don't think we can curse on air, what the heck, Uh, this isn't what we discussed, uh, and and they claimed that they were caught off guard. I'm not sure that I buy that. Um, But this, 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 we're making the situation way too complicated. The Pentagon came out and said, uh, that it's too complex of a logistical operation to send these MiGs to Ukraine, which is nonsense. And they said that there's no strategic reason to do so, which is also nonsense. I would like the White House to turn on their TV and look at the images of Mariupol, Ukraine, where children are dying from dehydration and do not have food or water and are melting snow, and they're under heavy, heavy fire. So there's every reason to do this now, and it is not logistically complicated. It is less than an hour flight from where the, the, the MiGs are in Poland to where they need to go in Ukraine. And the Russian Air Force is not there. It is safe, and we should do it now. Okay, I guess they're afraid of the reaction from Putin, though, right? Because Putin has continued to say, oh, this would be some sort of unacceptable escalation. This would be a, basically a declaration of war, I guess. 
Is that is that the problem? Like they're worried about his reaction, right? Yeah, the, the, the White House is afraid of its own shadow. That's the real problem, and no one wants to say it. So this this is not going to cause an escalation. The White House doesn't want to do a no-fly zone. It doesn't even want to do a limited no-fly zone. And look, I, I understand their arguments and their reluctance there. I think we should do it, and I think there's a moral case to be made. But if they're not going to do that, they at least need to allow the jets to be flown from Poland uh, to, to Ukraine and then backfill. So the idea is that Poland would give up these MiGs, and the United States would give F-16s, would sell F-16s, so that the Poles have some air defenses. Yeah, what is the difference between these MiG fighter jets and the Javelin and Stinger missiles that are flowing into Ukraine? I mean, why is it okay for the White House to put on these these missiles on the back of a truck or a train and and ship those into Ukraine, and and they're willing to do that, but for some reason this other type type of kit, this this jet, is is a different category? Why, why, Why are they looking at that? Why they? Why do they look at it that way, Mike? You're going to have to ask 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue that question. I think that's a brilliant question. Uh, they, it's nonsense. Uh, they need to stop talking to lawyers and they need to do the right thing. There's 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 no difference. Okay, there's a difference in you know how high uh, how high things can fly, but that, that's that's you know that's neither here nor there. Uh, they're they're tr- they're worried that the Russians will view this as an escalation, uh, right. and it will cause you know a boots on the ground, and that's the red line Biden has said you know over my dead body, but they're wrong. It's it's not going to be. It will not cause an escalation. Uh, the Russians have uh, an, enough problems in Kiev and in other parts of Ukraine right now. I'm speaking to Melinda Herring from the Atlantic Council. She's spent close to 30 years uh, studying uh, Vladimir Putin. Uh, let me ask you, Melinda, about. I was fascinated by some of the testimony yesterday from William Burns, the director of the CIA, uh, testifying in front of uh, Congress. And here he is speaking about how Putin got this all wrong in Ukraine and what could be the reaction now with Putin kind of cornered here. This is the CIA director, and then I'll get your thoughts. Putin has, has commented privately and publicly over the years that he doesn't believe Ukraine's a real country. He's dead wrong about that. Real countries fight back. And that's what the Ukrainians have done quite heroically over the last 12 days. Um, As you said, Mr. Chairman, I think Putin is angry and frustrated right now. He's likely to double down and try to grind down the Ukrainian military with no regard for civilian casualties. Yes, uh, uh, William Burns, the director of the CIA, speaking yesterday. Melinda, what what do you think of his analysis there and his analysis of Putin's mindset right now? He's spot on, Mike. Putin is not the same person he was when he came into power at the end of 99. So he's always been a cautious risk taker, but he's been cautious. And trying to go in and take uh, Ukraine whole hog is not the move of a, a cautious risk taker. Something has changed in his mind. And look, the circles around Putin are very small, so we don't know. And we have to speculate based on the evidence we see. And what we see is that he's become very isolated during covid He was paranoid and weird before COVID. He's even more paranoid and weird now. In his last meeting with Emmanuel Macron, he, the president of France, he demanded that Macron take three PCR tests. Uh, You know, I I don't know what it's like in Vancouver, but in the United States, um, you know, COVID sort of on the way out. And and this is kind of a weird thing to demand. Uh, And then he wouldn't sit anywhere near him. He was at that hilariously long table. Um, you know, and he was angry. He shouted about Russia's historic grievances the entire time. He didn't want to talk about diplomatic off-ramps. He didn't want to talk about peace agreements. 
All he wanted to do was shout about NATO and uh, its encirclement of Russia. Yeah, he does seem like in a, a very desperate situation right now in his mind. And the CIA director yesterday outlined all the things that Putin got wrong here. He was wrong about how quickly and decisively he could win this war. He was wrong about the impact of the of the Western sanctions against him. He was wrong about the the willingness and ability of the Ukrainians to fight back. So he's been wrong about all this stuff. Does that now make him kind of desperate to win at all costs, no matter what? I, I think it makes Putin willing to consider options that you and I would not consider to be rational. So was it rational for him to go into Ukraine on the 24th? No. But Putin's calculus is different than ours. And he sees the world differently than we do. So I think Burns' testimony is, is spot on. Putin doesn't recognize Ukraine as an independent country. He says, yeah. my historic lands sit, my Russia's historic lands sit in Ukraine. He says Ukrainian language is fake. I mean, he's totally wrong. But he also, there, there's some legacy issues. He wants to go down in Russian history as a great leader. And he also, he saw weakness everywhere. And he thought this is his moment to strike Ukraine. This is not, uh, you know, going after Ukraine is, is not some new ambition. It's been there for a long time. The West just didn't want to acknowledge it and has looked away for a long time at, at Rus yep. Russia's revanchism. The other thing that I've been wondering about is what is the exit strategy or the ultimate goal here for Putin? And can this in any way at this point be achievable in any kind of a victory for him? Because if the goal is regime change, which it, it appears to be to set up some kind of puppet government in Kiev, I, I don't see how that's a government like that can can be sustained given the level of hostility and opposition to the by the Ukrainian public. And this is something that the CIA director talked about yesterday as well. So let me play that for you, Melinda, and get your thoughts. So here, this is CIA director William Burns. Have a listen to this. I failed to see, and our analysts failed to see, how he could sustain a puppet regime or a you know, pro-Russian leadership that he tries to install in the face of what is you know, massive opposition from the Ukrainian people. Okay, so what kind of jam has Putin got himself in here? Like, if he puts in some sort of puppet regime, can a, can a puppet government even last there in the country? No, it will fall. But Bill Burns is, again, exactly right. So the, the, if, you, if you need a rule of thumb, Putin can basically take as much of Ukraine as he wants. It will be a fight, but he cannot hold it. And that, that's, the, that's where he gets into real problems. So uh, I think it was about six weeks ago or five weeks ago, uh, there was a rumor the the Brits released some intelligence saying that the Russians wanted to install this man named Mariev as the president. And the reaction in Kiev was LOL. Uh, Mariev is a loser. He ran uh, for you know the presidency in 2019, and he you know he got he got no he has no backing or support. So the the, the basic issue is that Moscow doesn't understand Kiev anymore. Kiev has changed massively since 2014 when it had the Euromaidan uh, revolution, and it's really embraced a Western identity, and it doesn't want to be part of Russia's sphere of influence any longer. But I, I have to say, Mike, it's really important uh, right now. Yes, the Russian uh, forces are not playing a good game. It looks like Putin brought his B team. But let's not let's not uh, slap the, ourselves on the back, uh, the West, our Western backs, uh, and celebrate too soon. Keep the champagne on ice. There are we don't have enough reporting um, about what's being happening in in southeastern Ukraine. Uh, there's a lot of fighting out there. Uh, it's very scary, and I think Putin will probably take. 
uh, uh, most of the cities along the, the, the sea relatively soon. Um, and, and, you know, we, I think we need to be modest in our assessment. It's only, you know, it's only been two weeks, uh, and Russia has a lot more men uh, and air power than the Ukrainians do. So, uh, you know, keep the champagne on ice. This is not going to be an easy fight. It's going to be a long fight. Uh, the Ukrainian uh, armed forces are stronger than we thought. The Russian forces are weaker than we estimated. I'm not surprised by the, the strength of the resistance, though. If Vladimir Putin had bothered to read a newspaper, he would have seen there was a poll that was done before he invaded on the 24th that said that 45 percent of Ukrainians would stay and fight. So the resistance, you know, that, and that's what's happening. Um, you, lawyers, doctors, normal people are, are staying put. They have AK-47s and they're learning how to use weapons and they're setting up barricades and trying to defend the city of Kiev. Melinda, thank you for your time and your expertise and your analysis today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Take care. Uh, all right. Welcome back to the show. And as you heard on our previous segment there with Keith Baldry, COVID-19 restrictions are expected to be scaled back soon here in British Columbia. Tomorrow, we expect an announcement from Dr. Bonnie Henry, the proof of vaccination card and indoor masking rules expected to be scaled back or at least a date or a timeline for that to happen. Now, it really does feel like and seem like covid is coming to an end here. That's the way it feels, and a lot of people are grateful that that's the case. But just a reminder here about the importance of still to get vaccinated, okay, because people can still get really sick from this virus. Let's discuss now with my guest, Lindsay Meredith, Professor Emeritus, Simon Fraser University. A lot of you may have heard Many countless interviews he's done on CKNW over the years as a business and marketing prophet, SFU. Uh, today, he's got a bit of a different story to tell, and I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Professor Meredith, thanks a lot for coming on today. Hey, Mike. Nice to talk to you. Okay. Professor Meredith, as, as I understand it, you're triple vaccinated, right? Yep. Okay, but you still got COVID, correct? Yep. Followed all the rules they kept the bubble small, did everything exactly according to the book and still got nailed. A little hook here, though. Um, I'm immunocompromised as well, Mike. So that kind of thing can make you more of a target. I'm also a male and I'm also older. All of those things together make you a really good target. What's my point here? I never thought I'd be making, doing an interview like this one. Um, I went through an experience for seven days I can only describe as bloody horrific and I sure want to try and spread the word out there. I'm not talking, look, I'm not going to convert the 20-year-old, convert the 20-year-olds or the 30-year-olds or even the 40s. What I want to do is get you guys to understand that, you know, it's going to bounce off you in many, many cases. But you know what? It might take the legs off your parents. It might take the legs off anybody you know who's immunocompromised on chemotherapy, for example. Those people, it would be absolutely catastrophic for them. Okay, it sounds like you went through a really brutal experience. When did you catch COVID? Well, it was, uh, uh, I guess, it's all a blur now, two or three weeks ago. And uh, what can I tell you? Two or three weeks ago, I was skiing down Whistler at 60 kilometers an hour, having a whale of a time. In 48 hours, I was gasping for breath and wondering what the hell happened to me. Um, that's how fast it moves. Big, uh, a, a big uh, lead line here, folks. Look, if you show up at Emerge or if you're having trouble speaking after about three words and you've got to stop to breathe, that's you will make sure you call 911. If you're at that point, you are already really deep in the quicksand 
trying to recover. He was a big job at that point. Okay, is that what you did? You called 911? Well, like an idiot, because I'm a male and I'm older, I called, <laughs> I talked to a nurse, and she said, call 911. And, of course, guess who tried to ride it out for a day or two? And I got better. And then I went mm. right over the falls. And then, by gosh, I wound up in emergency after that, I'll tell you. And I never had an emergency bed so fast in my life. Once they check your oxygen level, they find out it's way under, it's under 90, you're a guest at the White Sheet Motel. Whoa. How long were you in the hospital? Uh, seven days. Seven days and seven nights on a locked ward. Remember, you're contagious as hell, and they're not going to let you out to infect the rest of the hospital even more. So you got the distance between your door and the window, about 15 to 20 feet, except it's mostly covered in all kinds of equipment, so you can't walk anyway. And then you get to listen to three other people in that room, and I'm not exaggerating here, my friend. I, my guess, if I had to put money on it, I think all three are die. I, some are dead now, or else all three will be dead very soon. Um, I never heard anything so awful in my bloody life. Um, the crying, the screaming, the calling out for sons, the calling out for dads. Um, it was traumatic, very bloody traumatic. And that's the kind of thing you're setting other people up for if you pass this stuff on. Um, the, the screaming, the agony, it's almost like this thing was eating them from the inside out. It was, I can't describe it. And look, I'm no, I'm no chicken. Look, I've stirred down the wrong five minutes, submachine guns in Hungary, saved a drowning man twice who tried to drown me, and he was bigger than me. Uh, so I don't give up easy. I've never been anything through an experience like this one before. And the other big thing, if I could give every one of those nurses and doctors a $20,000 bonus, and I'm a pretty hard-nosed business guy, they'd have that twenty grand right now. I'm speaking to Professor Lindsay Meredith from Simon Fraser University about his experience with COVID. He's a week in the hospital. When did you, like, what was the worst point, the, sort of the lowest point in the hospital for you? Uh, I think absolutely 24-7, because remember, you're locked in, you can't get away. Yeah. Listening to those other people gasping and wheezing and crying and yelling and screaming not being able to get away from that. And of course, having your own problems where you're gasping like a fish out of water as well. And, you know, making yourself get up and, and try to walk, even though every bone in your body is just screaming. Um, the symptoms are just, all I can say is overwhelming. Look, guys, this is not the cold. It's not the flu. Okay. It is 50 degrees worse than that. 50 degrees. This thing is a freight train. It's one of those Russian tanks that it parks right on your head. What kind of treatment did you receive in hospital? Outstanding. Um, if I could, if I could, you know, I can't say enough good enough enough good things about these people. They throw the kitchen sink at you. You get everything from dexamethasone, which would be a pretty strong steroid, because remember you got huge inflammation in your lungs. You're getting actual uh, some of the other drugs that might be used to treat uh, COVID directly. Remdesivir. Um, all about a couple of drugs in that category. Then you get all of the inhalers like the Atrovent and Sublimidol. Um, the list goes on. They just, they, they literally pull out the kitchen sink and throw it at this thing because it's everything they got to try and stop this and slow it down to give your body a chance to try and fight back. But this thing is such an overwhelming beast. Like I say, I've had bugs before, but I've never been steamrolled like this in my life.
Yeah, and you mentioned, Lindsay, that you were triple vaccinated, and it, it sounds yeah. like some of the people in the COVID ward with you were obviously in a, in a lot worse condition than you, and you believe that some of them actually passed away. Were, were yeah, the other? well, you know what? I, yeah. the, I, I'm a firm believer the only reason I got away with this is because I was triple vaccinated. And, you know, look, the nurses, and, and I know better, too, because I'm kind of hooked to the medical community in a consultant role. Look, if I ask them who, who was vaccinated, they're not going to tell me. They'll tell me to buzz off. Um, but what I did say is I just kind of said, generally, is this whole ward, like me, all triple vaccinated? And the nurses just looked at me and rolled their eyes and then turned their backs on me. The message was pretty damn clear. Um, and you know what? To watch the other ones fall, COVID just wipes them out. They go into kidney failure. They go into liver failure. Uh, lungs fail the whole nine yards and you can see why the doctors can't save them because now the entire body crashes in on itself and once you got a total implosion hey there's nothing left to fix man the whole thing's off the rails speaking of lindsay meredith professor at simon fraser university about his experience in the in the covid war so you believe lindsay that the vaccine saved your life fair to say 100 bloody percent yeah yeah do do you did you ever get close to, like, often the people who are in the worst condition end up getting intubated. Uh, did it come that close for you? Hey, well, it was a fight. I fought like mad, and they fought, thank goodness, to keep me. There are three steps involved. If you get in there, first step down, and I got into that category, you're not, you're, you're not showing enough oxygen in your body. So it's called an oximeter. You put it on, you guys have all seen it. They stick it on your finger. That measures the amount of oxygen in your, butt, your blood. If that falls below 90, you're not making friends in the hospital anymore. They're getting ready to get you on oxygen. If you stay on oxygen for a while and you're not doing well, um, then you go on to ICU. If you go to ICU, you had intubation, and that means a ventilator. And weaning you off a ventilator is very problematic. It is not an easy process. You lose a lot of patients trying to do that recovery system. Um, that's why, you know, the guy next to me, they said, come on, should we take you over to ICU? That guy was fighting tooth and nail. He was not going to ICU. He knew what that meant because that's kind of the finish line once you get into there. You might get out of there, and some people do get out of there, thank goodness, and a lot of people do not get out of there. Okay, well, I'm, I'm very happy you got out of there. Lindsay, how is your health doing now? It's a long battle. Um, I'm a stubborn guy. I, I, I hate lying in bed, and I... Uh, so I'm up trying to move around, Mike, and you know what? I'm fighting for every square inch. I'm kind of probably post-infection point now, 14, 15 days, and I'm still short of breath. But you know what? I can now move around and do things for about an hour, and then after that, you're just gasping for air again. And I'm told, look, put up with it. It's going to be like this sometimes for up to two to three months. And those that's not a, what they call a long hauler, Mike. Two to three months is if everything works well and I get out of this thing. Oh, by the way, this thing attacks everything. My hearing is almost totally gone. Um, it hits your hearing. It hits everything in sight. So, you know, again, if I could leave one, one real message here, Mike, look, don't think about yourself. Don't think about your own right to vaccinate or not or to go drinking beer with your buddies or to have a vaccine passport. Think about the other people. You wouldn't drive down the wrong side of the freeway, would you, and kill people? Why would you run around and do this? You know, if your mom and dad hadn't vaccinated for you for measles, mumps, smallpox, diphtheria, polio, tuberculosis, all kinds of stuff, you'd be dead by now anyway. What's the problem with a little needle stick? We're talking to the 1% out there, but you know what? You're the guys who still spread it. Smarten up.
Lindsay, Meredith, I want to thank you for sharing your story. It sounds like it was a nightmare you went through. I'm glad you came through it, and I'm very grateful to you for sharing the story today. Thanks a lot. Mike, thanks. Thank you for giving me a little shot at this. There's a lot of anger here. By now, you figured that out. Yeah, I'm very hopeful for your full and complete recovery. Thanks again for coming on. All right, let's talk about the corporate exodus from Russia now. Some of the largest and most iconic brands and companies shutting down operations in Russia after the invasion of Ukraine. McDonald's, Starbucks, Pepsi, Coca-Cola, Visa, MasterCard, PayPal, and more shutting down their Russian operations. How does this impact Russia? Could it make a difference in the brutal war in Ukraine? I've got Dr. Rob Person standing by to discuss. First, have a listen to this report from NBC News in Chicago, which is the headquarters for McDonald's. Have a listen. Bowing to increasing pressure, Chicago-based McDonald's announced it will temporarily stop operating in Russia and Ukraine. It's closing 850 restaurants in Russia, 108 in Ukraine. This will be a loss of 9% of McDonald's annual revenue. Once McDonald's announced, Starbucks, Coca-Cola, and Pepsi made the same move. They're in a foreign policy uh, world, whether they like it or not. And so um, these, as I say, these aren't easy decisions. Um, you know, no one knows how this is going to end. In a statement to its employees, McDonald's CEO Chris Kapensky said, quote, we cannot ignore the needless human suffering unfolding in Ukraine. All right, let's discuss now with my guest, Dr. Rob Person, Associate Professor of International Relations at West Point Military Academy. Very pleased to welcome him to the show. Dr. Person, thanks a lot for coming on today. Thanks, Mike. Pleased to be with you. Okay, McDonald's shutting down. Let's start with McDonald's here, as you heard in that report. Boy, that's a big chunk of their, uh, their market there, 9% market share. What are your thoughts on McDonald's move here? You know, I, it, it really is a significant uh, chunk of their uh, of, of their revenue. You know, I, yeah. I think if, if my stock portfolio fell by 9%, um, you know, I'd be pretty concerned about it too. But, you know, obviously, I think they're taking a moral position. Uh, I, I think, you know, I'd, I'd call me idealist, but I think they want to do the right thing. And certainly, uh, it makes sense in protecting their brand. Uh, you know, they, they certainly don't want to be associated uh, too closely with you know, the dictatorial regime of uh, Vladimir Putin and the war that he's waging against Ukraine. So, you know, I suspect uh, in the big picture, it makes economic sense for them. Uh, but it also holds really significant symbolic value, I think, in international politics and uh, and even the future of Russia itself. Yeah. And and as far as you know, it's taking a moral and a correct and moral position, I guess, is one thing. But there's also the potential for a consumer backlash, I guess, if they had not done that, because we had already seen trending on social media, things like hashtag boycott Coca-Cola, boycott McDonald's. Like if they had not backed down and shut down, they could have had a potential consumer problem on their hands. Correct. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Uh, you know, listen, let's let's be realistic. It's it's easy to do the right thing when it happens to line up with your economic interests. And I don't think any of these companies really wanted to face uh, Western boycotts of their products uh, because of continuing operations inside of Russia. Some of these companies have a really fascinating history in Russia. A, a lot of people may remember when that very first McDonald's opened up in Moscow back in 1990. I certainly remember that. And the big lineups there, the, the people in Moscow and Russia trying a, a Big Mac for the first time. 
I mean, that, that was a, a pretty powerful symbol uh, at the time. Yeah, it, it really was. So it was 1990, um, and you know the first McDonald's opens in Moscow on, on Pushkin Square, right in the heart of the city. Tens of thousands of Soviet citizens line up for, uh, for their taste of a Big Mac and McDonald's fries. And in a lot of respects, you know, this moment really symbolizes the USSR's opening to the West and the end of the Cold War. Um, and so, you know, in many respects, the, the closure of McDonald's in Russia today almost sort of bookends that idealistic post-Cold War period. You know, that period where we thought that perhaps, you know, the principles of, of free markets um, and, and, and free nations sort of would reign supreme around the world. Obviously, that dream is over, and uh, you know we see many manifestations of it, uh, including you know the closure of, of McDonald's today. Yeah, no, it really is amazing the symbolism there for sure. And we had the big lineups in 1990 for the first Big Mac, and then ironically, this week in Moscow, we saw the big lineups uh, for people to try and get the last Big Mac. There were big lineups to go through a drive-through at McDonald's before they shut down. People in Russia try to get one last Big Mac before they shut down. It's really powerful symbolism there. Uh, some of these other companies, interesting background as well. Pepsi. So Pepsi's they've been in Russia a long time, right? Yeah, most people don't know this really fascinating history, but Pepsi uh, actually has has been uh, a presence in Russia uh, in in one way or another since all the way back to 1959. So there's this American National ex Exhibition in Moscow. Uh, this is where uh, then Vice President Nixon and Nikita Khrushchev have their famous sort of impromptu uh, kitchen debate. Yeah. Uh, but Pepsi, Pepsi has a booth there, um, and they're giving out free samples of their product. And, and Russians, again, are lining up you know, to, to taste this bewitching elixir from the West. And Pepsi <laughs> sort of stuck with cultivating that relationship uh, they started um, actually bottling Pepsi within the Soviet Union in 1972. Uh, but of course, the Soviet Union, you know, can't really trade currency with outside countries because of its sealed economic system. So they actually end up trading Pepsi syrup uh, that they're importing uh, for Stolichnaya vodka um, that they export and that Pepsi then sells abroad. So it's, it's essentially a barter relationship uh, again, until really the end of the Cold War when the uh, economy opens up and, and it becomes sort of a more traditional trade relationship. Wow, that's amazing. Speaking to Dr. Rob Person, West Point Military Academy, and we're talking about some of these big, iconic companies shutting down operations in Russia after the Russian invasion of, of Ukraine. The war on the ground in Ukraine is uh, obviously brutal, Rob. We're seeing lots of horrifying images of civilian casualties the the humanitarian crisis is growing with the refugees flowing out of out of the country do you think that these companies shutting down operations in russia can make any kind of a difference in in the outcome of this crisis i think that these actions may have an indirect uh, impact on the course of the war and that stems from the fact that ultimately you know it's my belief um, and I should note that, that I'm speaking here in a personal capacity. You know, it's my belief that really the Russian people are the only ones that can pressure Putin to end this war. Uh, if we see hundreds of thousands of Russians protesting 
uh, on the streets of Moscow, St. Petersburg, and other large cities. That's about the only force I think that he would truly have to reckon with. Um, Now, over the last 30 years, Russians have embraced Western consumerism, and they've really enjoyed that access to Western products and companies. You know, I've eaten at that McDonald's on Pushkin Square many, many times, and the line is always long, um, even long after the the store opened. Um, And so, you know, there's an attachment to, to that access to the global economy. It's also worth remembering that Putin's original basis of popularity in the early 2000s really was based on his success in raising living standards. Uh, you know, he made ordinary Russians better off. Um, and as a result, they sort of tacitly agreed to remain sort of politically neutral. I um, mean, so I do wonder, you know, as these sanctions really start to bite, as they lose their access to Western products and brands, uh, you know, ordinary Russians may start to rethink that support of Putin. And, you know, we could see uh, increasing dissent domestically. Okay, it's a fascinating one to watch. Rob, thanks a lot for coming on with your expertise and your analysis today. I appreciate it a lot. My pleasure. Have a good day.